Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Good morning. My name's Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood Church. Uh, I must say, um, after I feel like Pastor Howard and Lindsay have already preached enough today. This has been a good Sunday, but I've already got something written. Um, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to say it anyway. Um, now today, uh, well, if you've been joining us for some time, you know that we have been working through uh, the letter of Acts. Uh, it is kind of a continuation, or it is a continuation of uh, the gospel of Luke. It was written by Luke, and if you read those two together, you'll see that they, they just kind of flow into each other as they go from Jesus' life into the life of the church following Jesus' ascension. And um, today's story from Acts is going to strike a little bit of a, of a a different tune compared to where we've gone. Uh, today, <clears throat> we are going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you know those names and it, you remember the story, it's kind of almost all you need to hear is just the names. Uh, but if that doesn't ring a bell, let me just tell you briefly where we're going to go today, or at least the story that we're going to hear. Um, Ananias and Sapphira are a uh, married couple who are a part of the early church. Uh, they have a piece of property, likely a secondary piece of property. Uh, they sell it, and uh, they take some of the money, and they keep it for themselves, and then they give the rest of the money to the church. And the catch is that they say that what they give is entirely what they sold the property for. They, they lied. And, uh, and consequently, God goes all Old Testament on them and kills them. And we're left saying, what just happened? Uh, what does this say about God? And how does it how do we understand this as it relates to ourselves and God's nature? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And we are uh, going to be looking at the whole story. And by the whole story, I mean the story of Ananias and Sapphira beginning in chapter five, but also the last half of chapter four, because there is a teaching that leads up to that story that is meant to be coupled together. And we're going to look in more detail and see that they are definitely meant to go together. Even though there's this chapter divide in your Bibles, they are meant to go together. So we are going to read the whole story, which is the last half of chapter four and the beginning of chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. So, here it is, beginning in Acts 4, verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that, all, uh, that, um, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, uh, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his uh, wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, didn't that, uh, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Uh, then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. After three hours, or about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, hey, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down uh, at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, at this time, uh, the deacons will be coming forward. <laughs> And I would encourage you um, to examine in your heart what you gave this morning uh, if you plan to leave here alive. I'm joking. But am I? Yeah, good, take these down. Our deacons are aggressive here. Um, no, but like, yeah, we're joking, but also like, don't you kind of read that a little bit on edge? I mean, does, did, did this really happen? Could it still happen today? Could it happen to, to you or I? Do these rules kind of seem to, uh, or do they still apply today? Um, why didn't God give Ananias and Sapphira a second chance? Uh, was God behaving badly or somehow did the punishment actually fit the crime? Uh, I mean, clearly these two deaths are the elephant in the room, but I, I want to, again, let's go in order. Let's start with what leads up to this event, uh, which is a description of community life, and, uh, because I think that if we know what Luke is trying to tell us, if we, if we see what Luke is kind of the, the old, especially the Old Testament strings that Luke is pulling as he tells the story and as he highlights parts of this story, I think it'll help us read chapter five differently. And I'm not telling you that your initial impressions will change from what you read about Ananias and Sapphira. However, I do think that it will change the implications that we apply to God. And I think that's extremely important in this case. Uh, this is one of those stories that kind of say handle with care, I feel like should be kind of marked right on it. And that's what we're going to do. And a part of doing that is again, reading and understanding the whole story as one, not just the second half. 
Now to start, we've got to kind of put our minds in the same place as the people who were experiencing it in that day. We've got to understand how community life and how this experience would have been viewed through the lens of someone who was Jewish in the first century. So back then, uh, the, even before, before Christ, uh, Jews under, uh, thought that through Israel, uh, God, which was God's covenant community, God's promises would come true. Uh, they would be the vehicle with which God's promises would be made true and experienced in the world. Now, the early Christians, this is something that is just good to know in any time you read the New Testament because it impacts how we, how we might read. But the early Christians, like who we read here in, in this part of Acts, they did not understand themselves as, as Christians yet. That label hadn't been applied. They were simply Jews who also believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so consequently, the, uh, the, the Israel, understanding themselves as being the vehicle through which God's promises would be made true, the early church saw themselves as a continuation of that, that you know, promise-making and, and promise-keeping. And so, so the early church would have understood their identity, who they were and what they did from an Old Testament lens, believing that God was going to continue his redemptive work through them as he had done for so long. Now, this meant that Old Testament promises were often reapplied uh, with a messianic viewpoint. So with the teachings of Jesus in mind and the resurrection of Jesus, they would look back at these Old Testament uh, stories and, and, re, and kind of re-understand them with this fresh perspective of God. And this is going to help us explain why the early Christians lived in such a kind of a communal way and also understand why God reacted in such a way to Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, and to do that, we're going to go back in time a bit to uh, Deuteronomy 15. Um, in Deuteronomy 15, God commands a very radical means of Jewish life that was known as uh, the Jubilee. And the Jubilee is that at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. And as a result, there need be no poor people among you. And if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Now, this is, this is key to understand what Luke is up to, uh, because if we compare Deuteronomy to what we just read in Acts, specifically Acts chapter 4, uh, we will see that they believe themselves to be kind of fulfilling this, this jubilee promise, this jubilee lifestyle through the, the life of the church. So Acts 4, 34 says, and, and read it, we're going to read it, but keep in mind Deuteronomy 15, it says that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then as an example of this extraordinary generosity and, and lifestyle being lived out, uh, Luke gives us a specific example, and we're introduced to someone who will become a reoccurring character throughout the New Testament, a man named Barnabas. And it says that Barnabas sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So you've got the Old Testament teaching, you've got the New Testament, ex New Testament church expression of it, and you've got an a example, a real 
world example of a person who truly lived it out. And through this, you can hear the similarities as you go from Deuteronomy 15 into Acts chapter 4. They understood themselves through this jubilee mindset. Now, at this point, you're still thinking, perhaps, okay, Acts, Jubilee, uh, death, how do all of these connect? Well, let's bring them together here. The early Christians knew right from the beginning that following Jesus means being a part of this true covenant community. The promises would continue through them and through uh, the church. And a specific example of that covenant community being lived out, for them being truly faithful, was the Jubilee. But what was different was that the Jubilee achieved the forgiveness of financial debts. But Jesus achieved the forgiveness of sins. The Acts Church was making God's promises through the Jubilee real by selling any of the extra that they had been blessed with and giving it to people who didn't have enough. And the mechanism through which they understood this kind of generosity and community care was this thing that was known to them as the Jubilee. In fact, while the Old Testament made the Jubilee this like once in every seven years event, the Christian church modeled Jubilee as a daily, everyday way of living. The Jubilee was truly interwoven with their identity. They were living in the goodness of God's forgiveness every day of their life. And so consequently, because of God and his grace and his forgiveness of them, they lived this jubilee generosity and this jubilee joy every single day. It was a part of their identity. It wasn't just an event anymore that would take place every seven years. It was something that they would live into, that they would wake up and they would think about, and they would, what they would do would come from this understanding of jubilee. Jubilee was about being right with God and one another. And so for the first Christians, they saw this as something, again, that should be celebrated every day because the truth of the resurrection and the truth of their forgiveness was something that they lived into every single day. Now, this is not the first time that, you know, we've been given this, like, glimpse into what community life looked like for the early church. Uh, notably, just a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47, which gives this very concise, beautiful picture of, of church life in that time. This time, however, we see a greater emphasis on how generosity impacted and sustained the, the community life, which again makes sense because Luke is writing in this instance from his understanding and the outcomes of what a jubilee lifestyle looks like. And so as we kind of look at this, I, I think that there's a... Um, I'll call it like a modern irony. There's a bit of a, a modern irony that some today would bemoan that a community like the Acts Church is so rare. While equally rare is generosity like the early church, something that the American church at the very least still practices today. Today, self-identified, just a few stats here, self-identified Christians today give an average of 2% of their, 2.5% of their income uh, to, um, to charitable, uh, in, in uh, what am I thinking of, charitable causes, towards charitable causes. Uh, now, this number is actually lower uh, when you consider giving to the churches that, that people call home, but, but 
2.5%. Now, just to give that some perspective as well, uh, during the United States' worst economic time in recent history, the Great Depression, during the Great Depression, Christians gave an average of 3.3%. So even while times have become even more prosperous than back then, we give on average less to charitable causes and to churches uh, than ever before. How about this? When, when, um, when religious people think about giving, a lot of times the word that comes to mind is a tithe. Um, now, some of you smarty pants out there, you might say, well, the tithe was a gift that was, it, it means 10%, but it was given to the temple. And because there's no temple, there is no such thing as a tithe anymore. And you smarty pants are right. Quit splitting hairs. The point is that, that this idea of 10% has definitely been embedded into kind of Christian understanding of what, what giving is. Now, and I, and I affirm the 10% just because I do believe that, that 10% for many people it is truly a sacrificial gift. It's not just throwing change in that you have left over. 10% means something to people and that makes it a part of, uh, it makes it a part of our worship. But let's just take that, that 10% for a second here. Uh, only about three out of 10 self-identified Christians give 10% of their income. Now, actually it's 2.7. I just couldn't fill in half. So you see three. I rounded up. I gave us the benefit of the doubt. But 2.7% but of Christians give 10% of their income to charitable causes. Again, that number goes down when you look at just the church. Now, here's what's so surprising to me. Uh, that number is exactly the same, 2.7% among non-Christians, which means that there is no quantifiable difference in generosity between Christians and non-Christians today in the American church. So again, I raise the irony of this kind of giving paradox that we have that so many people bemoan that they just don't make them like they used to when it comes to churches, when really it's us who have changed. Generosity used to be an important hallmark, an understanding, a way of living as the church, a way of caring for one another. It was just a part of, of what the early church was. And we see that through their generosity and other expressions of faith that the, the church grows, that the, the church has this magnificent impact on the community. And I can't help but think that some of these statistics might be a bit of an indicator of something that's happening today in American consciousness as we sort of separate generosity and giving from church life. Even some of you now, you're like, shut up about giving because money is for me. It's what I talk about. You don't talk about money. And look, Jesus spent two-thirds of his teachings talking about money and the use of, of our possessions. If I had two-thirds of my, if I, if I preached proportionately to Jesus, a year from now, you'd all be gone. And I wouldn't know, I don't even know what material I'd have anymore. He spoke so much about what we did because our possessions and our money are, are so powerful and it's a powerful force against us and for us with Christ and through the church. All right, let's move on. With this description of church life and generosity as our backdrop, we can now talk about Ananias and Sapphira. 
So remember that right before we are introduced uh, to, uh, to the two of these, to, to these folks, uh, we are introduced to Barnabas, who sells his property and gives all that he made, all the profits he gives to the church. Now, Barnabas is a purposeful contrast. He is there not just to introduce a character, but to contrast what would come next. For, uh, Acts 5.1 says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also what's also referring to Barnabas. So also they sold a piece of property like Barnabas. And whereas it says Barnabas took the money, put it at the apostles' feet, the two of them kept back part of the money for himself, for Ananias, uh, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So in case there's any doubt about the contrast, Luke very purposefully words his account of this happening in order to say, look, I am comparing. We've got Barnabas, now we have Ananias and Sapphira. And, and as you remember how it, I mean, you kind of remember how it goes from here. He's struck dead, and then his wife shows up not knowing what had happened, and Peter asks her a question. He says, tell me, is this the price you and I, Ananias got for the land? She says yes, and she joins her husband. Now, here's what I think the, the crime is, or the, 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 what we are to actually learn, what we're to take from this, the sin that is so, um, that is acted against by God. I don't, I don't think it's just holding money back from the sale, and I don't get to why, uh, because you'll read plenty that will say that's what it is. I think that it's lying. I think the, the real crime here, the sin here, what God is reacting against is lying. And what we see is also how, how destructive lying can be to a community and why God has to act the way that he does. So here's why I think that. First off, first off, contextually, um, Many of the early Christians retained their private property, okay? So as you read through the New Testament, you will find examples of early Christians um, having property that is used. People will visit someone's home. It implies that not everyone sold everything that they had. In many cases, they sold, you know, extra properties. That's what's suspected of, of Barnabas, that he sells this kind of additional property that he has and, and brings the money. Again, it's people who, are, who have extra, who have been blessed with extra, who take that extra and give to those who who don't have enough. Um, so this would have just happened. Now, yes, there is this kind of communal, um, there's the communal language of our, of, of um, you know, possess it, kind of everyone possessing things together. However, um, it would not have been practiced in that everyone would have sold everything that they had and given to this pot, this pot being the church, and the church would, would distribute, that many of them would have retained private property. Uh, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, they understood themselves as a church family, and a family often understands their things communally and, and uses plural pronouns to describe what they have. They see themselves as a church family, and so, that's how, so they speak about those things. So retaining personal property was normal. And also that, that implies that selling property and maybe not giving everything from the sale would have been likely acceptable within that, uh, within that community. Second, uh, Peter gives Sapphira a chance to be honest, okay? He asks her a question that he already knows the answer to, right? Tell me, is this what 
you got for your land? He already, he knows the answer. Everyone does. Everyone saw what happened. They know the answer, but he's asking her. And, and I think it's this, it's this wonderful, like, it's a bit of grace and a benefit of the doubt, right? Because uh, maybe she's in on it, and this is her chance to be honest. He's giving her this, like, this chance. Hey, you've gotten out right here, to be honest. Also, he could be giving her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she doesn't know. I mean, we know that she knows from the writing, but Peter at that time, he, maybe she's not in on it. Maybe he sold it and kept part of it and she didn't know, and then she sees the numbers. She's like, wait, that's lower. She could have said that. But again, she doesn't. But she's given a chance to be honest, not about the portion held back, but to be honest that that is not the full amount. Now, third, Ananias's lie is kind of like stolen valor especially when you compare it to what came before. Now, stolen valor is when someone pretends to be in the military who isn't or wasn't. Uh, in this country, it's a federal crime. And uh, the, the attraction to the imposter is to um, receive public accolades without requiring any sort of sacrifice. Okay, so now compare this to Barnabas. Barnabas, he has sold a bit of property and he has given all of it to the church. And the church is, um, the church would have celebrated this. I mean, it's written about, so it would have been known that Barnabas did this. You can imagine in that church community, it might have been a great deal of celebration and thankfulness for Barnabas' Barnabas's sacrifice. And perhaps Ananias and Sapphira saw that and they kind of wanted to, you know, have their cake and eat it too. They wanted in on that, but they weren't strong enough, they were not committed enough to actually have the sacrifice. But they still wanted the praise. And so they lie about how much the property actually sold for uh, in order to get both, and clearly it doesn't work. Now lastly, and the, the last kind of point here, is that yeah, Ananias' and, and Sapphira's actions break the jubilee. It breaks a part of the identity marker of that community. By breaking the jubilee, they break what it means to be a part of the community of believers. Now, this goes for any community. Lying breaks community because lying breaks down trust, and trust is what holds a community together. And as you know, trust is something that takes a long time to earn, but you can lose it so fast. And you need trust in order to keep a community together, to keep a community afloat. And a community that lies cannot stand. A community that lies won't last. And if lying isn't addressed in a community, then that community crumbles. And, and when it comes to the church, God had no plan B for for telling and, and displaying his redemptive works and, and new life in him. Uh, the, the church was how God would carry out these measures, and there was no plan B. So any threat against trust in the image of the church had to be dealt with, especially as the church is in its infancy. It's delicate. It's being, prote it's being closely protected because trust must hold in that community to bring it forward. Because God had bigger plans than just this small group. He had bigger plans than Jerusalem, and he had bigger plans than the neighboring regions. That God's message was to go out to continents that these people didn't even know existed yet. But at the time, they're just infants. Infants in faith, the church is in its beginning, and it must be protected. 
if you, um, if you claim Christ to be your savior, then you will live by that claim and, and God through Christ will judge you according to that claim. And, and this is a terrifying prospect, but I don't think that we should shy away with it. I don't think that just because it's, you look at the story and, and it makes us maybe a little bit uneasy that we should, again, shy away with it, try to dismiss it, try to argue around it, try to just skip over it. I think we really need to hold it and take into account what God is trying to teach us through it. And maybe, just maybe, if we took this claim that Jesus was our Savior and the most important part of our life, if we took that more seriously and we understood that and how we are ambassadors of Christ, then perhaps we would see more of the spectacular, miraculous events happening in the modern church that we get to read about in the book of Acts. We in our churches, we are not perfect. And the early church, though there is much to learn from them, was not perfect either. We won't be perfect, but we can be honest. That's one thing we can do despite no matter how imperfect we are as a community, every church, every one of us, we can be honest. One thing, this is actually one thing that I bring up to say, I, I'm very hopeful about the church in the present and the future. Because I have seen, even in my relatively short time being a part of a, of a church, I have seen this, this shift. And I have seen this stigma about the church beginning to disappear for those outside of the church. That for a time, the church, and, and, and still, still some pockets and for still some people, they, they understand the church this way. But understand it to be this dishonest uh, community. The, the people who pretend to be one thing on Sunday, but then act a completely different way the other times. And, and yes, we will always be guilty of hypocrisy. There's always going to be that because we are not perfect. But one thing I love about churches today, and especially young people coming into faith, is that for so many of them, they see honesty as a part of what it means to be a Christian. They see uh, uh, um, communal ways of expressing that honesty to be just a part of their religious life. And I love it. It's beautiful. I've seen some things happen here as people have grown to become more honest, to ask questions. Some weeks I feel like my office is a confessional booth as people come and it's like, this is beautiful. This is wonderful as communities, as, as we and as the church grow to become more honest because again, we cannot be perfect, but we can be honest and God will not bless who we pretend to be. Let's pray. God, thank you that you protected the early church, that you loved this early church, God. Thank you for the, 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 the ministry over time. As we read back in time, as our brothers and sisters kind of tried to sort all of this stuff out and understand themselves as a community of believers, thank you that they looked at, that, that you inspired them to look at pieces of scripture like the, like the Jubilee and to say, that's us, but even more so. Thank you that they lived with this jubilee joy that brought others to Christ. That their attraction was not in all these fancy, bright things, but, but what was attractive about that community was the joy, was their faith, was their love. And God, I, I pray that even though we cannot go back 
to that church. We cannot resurrect the first century church and live it exactly like that, God. We can learn from it. And we can be the modern church today that is faithful in some of the ways, in many of the ways, as the early church. And God, I I pray that you would crack the hard protective shells around our hearts that compel us to try to be someone that we're not, to try to put on masks and to hide the brokenness that we all share, each in our own ways. Thank you, God, that we have the chance to be a part of a community that can be honest with one another, that can be straightforward. I pray that through the church's honesty and Um, and transparency with one another, God, that as the Acts Church grew in numbers and saw so many people coming, that we would have the opportunity to see that as well. God, thank you for your faithfulness over time into the present church. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.